0: Taken from Acts chapter 2 verses 14 through 40. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, and you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, The word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Vanessa. This winter, um, and continuing into the spring, we've been looking at the Booker Bags, the history book of the Christian church that tells you what happened after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. First four books of the uh, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are a series of uh, eyewitness accounts Anecdotes about what the disciples saw Jesus say, do, how he interacted, his miracles, everything that he was about. The book of Acts tells you what happened next, tells you what did the disciples do after Jesus returned to the Father, after he was glorified. We saw last time that I was in front of you that just as Jesus had promised at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended in fire, landed on the apostles' heads, and they began speaking in tongues. Everybody heard them speaking in their own language, and all of Jerusalem was amazed. And then now, in response to that, because the Holy Spirit, as promised, is there, now the first Christian sermon. The first attempt by the church to spread the gospel beyond the people who've been recruited by Jesus. The first attempt to evangelize. The first attempt to share faith. Now, of course, preachers love this, the first sermon. And you can spend a lot of time, you can spend a semester going through this sermon and looking at the details of it. But I want to consider it at a a broader picture. What does it teach us? about sharing our faith? What does it teach us about helping other people to become Christians? About expanding the church beyond ourselves? When I first uh, became a Christian, I grew up in England. I became a Christian here in New York, went back to England. And um, I always remember, I was very enthused, knew virtually nothing. I didn't grow up in the church. And uh, I was trying to convince my uh, sister Jesus. Uh, She was there with her boyfriend, and we were at my parents' home, and it did not go well. And in fact, as the evening went on, I was getting increasingly angry because they were beginning to ridicule me. They were beginning to laugh. They were beginning to show contempt for what I was saying, and it was awful. It seemed so obvious, so straightforward and clean to me, and I was just not able to communicate. Amazingly frustrating. Frustrating. So, I pulled out the big guns, or the biggest gun I knew, a large study Bible that I had, and I read them from the beginning of the Gospel of John. You know, the first 15 verses, the Word became flesh, and the Word was God, and was with God. Um, Some of the most beautiful and powerful lines in the Bible that I knew. And I read all 15 verses breathlessly to them, and then looked at them like, now do you get it? And the contempt in their eyes, the bewilderment, the so what, it meant nothing to them. They didn't know the story of the Bible. They didn't know that Jesus was the word. They didn't know anything about the gospel story. And just reading the word meant nothing to them. I read it to them as you would some powerful incantation of magic that was going to crush them that was going to overwhelm their defenses, that was going to make them Christians. I was going to show my little sister who's boss. And instead, it felt completely flat. Because they had no connection with them. No ba- they had no background in it. They were just words. They weren't magic. There was no power. And there was no transformation. So let's look at how Peter goes about it. How do you speak to people who don't believe? Don't believe in Jesus who don't understand the gospel story. Look at verse 15. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. If you remember, some people thought that the um, disciples were drunk because they were speaking in tongues, and they must have looked kind of crazy. These people were not drunk, as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. How rational Peter is. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel now if you remember after jesus um, was resurrected he told the apostles to go wait for him and to pray and to study he explained to them on the road to emmaus that the whole bible old testament was about him that every story pointed to him that every king was fulfilled in him every prophet every priest every encounter in the old testament is all about Jesus all of the time. And so Peter and the disciples had just gone through this period of intense prayer and study of the Old Testament. And so immediately he goes to the Old Testament. He goes to the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young man will see visions. Your old man will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel, the book of Joel, is one of the shorter books in the Old Testament, three brief chapters, and yet hugely important because of this promise. The promise to Israel that no matter what happens, there will be a day of the Lord. This is where Israel got its sense of God's care for them. This is where they got the sense of a Messiah who would come on the day of the Lord and solve all their problems. And so this prophecy is part of the self-identity of every Jew, the self-identity of Israel, its hope, its promise. And so what is Peter doing? He is putting Jesus into Israel's story. He's studied Israel's story, the Old Testament, and he is now connecting it with the life of Jesus. And he's saying that Pentecost, what had just happened, what everybody had just seen, is this day of the Lord. That the Spirit is now right in front of you, Jerusalem, right in front of you, Jews from every nation. It's happening right now. You're in the middle of it. It's real. Look at it. Notice what you're part of right now. What is he doing? Peter is taking the beliefs of Judaism seriously. He has studied them. He knows the hopes and fears of all these Jews from all over the world. He knows why they're there in Jerusalem. He is taking their beliefs seriously, the premise of their beliefs, the assumptions behind their belief, and he is connecting it to Jesus. He's showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of all those hopes, the answer to those fears. By taking his audience's belief seriously, he is allowing them to understand who Jesus is. He's not just speaking at them. He's participating with them and walking with them through their national story, through their self-identity, and putting Jesus right at the center of that. And he gives some proofs verse 22 fellow Israelites listen to this Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know miracles and wonders had been promised Jesus had spent three years doing miracles and wonders in Israel. He traveled for three years through all the villages. One commentator said that because of his ministry, Israel is a very small place. Death and disease must have essentially ended in Israel while Jesus was alive. Everybody would have heard about him. Many of them would have seen him personally and heard of him. Three years he walked from village to village performing miracles and talking about the kingdom of God. And John the Baptist, we know John the Baptist just outside Israel was being visited by many people from Jerusalem. They were coming down the hill to the river Jordan where John the Baptist was telling them that the Messiah was here. So Peter is interpreting the things that Israel already knows about their story and has already seen Jesus ministry and is happening right then and there Pentecost and the pouring out of spirit of the Spirit. Now he roots Jesus more deeply in the Jewish tradition verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked man, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was v- impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Easter had just happened. You know, Pentecost was 50 days after Jesus' resurrection all of Jerusalem must have been asking the question, did it really happen? Did he really raise from the dead? Is he really the son of God? It must have been the question on everybody's lips. It had just happened. And Peter says, yes. He is the one who is resurrected because he belongs to God. And what does David have to say about him? You know, David was the great king of Israel. There's more about David than any of the other kings. All the Psalms were written by David. They were the music and the poetry of Israel. It's what people sang when they were on their way to the temple. It's what they would have taught to their children. And so Peter goes to one of the highlights of the Old Testament, to one of the great figures of the Old Testament. David said this about him. I saw the Lord who was before me, Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongues rejoice. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your body see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, you will fill me with joy in your presence. Who is this person that David is talking about? It's the Messiah. If you go through the Psalms of David, there are a series of Messianic Psalms pointing to the Messiah, the prayers of the Messiah. Psalm 16, which is what this is taken from, is one. Psalm 23, the uh, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 110, there's a whole series of them. Peter is going to the song and prayer book of Israel and pointing them to the Messiah and saying, this is Jesus. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of descendants on his throne. David was a patriarch, a prophet, and yet he died. But he pointed to one who would not die, who would sit on his throne. The Messiah, Jesus. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised his Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of him. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father, the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He's quoting Psalm 110 there, another Messianic psalm. Peter is taking the stories, the prayers, the heroes of Judaism and Israel seriously. He has obviously read through this stuff, prayed through this stuff, internalized it, and seen how it points to Jesus. And now, as he preaches, he's not just preaching blankly about Jesus. He's preaching from inside Judaism, using the resources and themes, the hopes and fears of Judaism to talk about Jesus. He's talking to people that he's come alongside and connecting them to what Jesus means to Peter. Verse 36 Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, but Lord and Messiah. Therefore Peter has made a rational argument to Israel and to Judaism, about why they should believe in Jesus. He's not speaking at them. He's speaking with them. And he's not just speaking in some kind of emotive way. He's making a rational argument connecting Jesus to the Old Testament, to the history of Israel, and to the purpose of Israel. He is expecting Jesus to make sense to them. He's expecting them to understand and be able to interpret what Jesus' life means. He wants them to use their heads. He wants them to think it through. But although you need to know the facts about Jesus, you need to be aware of the story and the details, nobody ever became a Christian just through argument. It's not just about your head and believing that this is true. It's also about the heart. Verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. You could also say they're pierced. And said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter gives them an argument, a rational, sensible argument, based on facts that they know he appeals to their minds, to their head. But it is when their hearts are pierced that there is this transformation. What shall we do? Here is repentance. Here is a move of the heart, a change in the orientation of the heart. This is what conversion looks like. Not just a set of facts, but a recognition, a feeling that those facts apply to you personally. Because Peter personally had involved himself in Israel's story and showed Jesus' connection with their story. It is easy to just speak at people. To expect them to change, or and I think this is unfortunate in in a lot of Christian um, interactions, to judge people, to say Christianity is right and you're wrong, Christianity is good and you are evil, the way you live, the things that you do. I am pure and saved over here, you over there, are damned, you are lost. New York City is Babylon, and people who live there and enjoy it are bad. Christians are notorious for saying things like that and alienating the world. If Jesus Christ had behaved that way, none of us would be here. If Peter had behaved that way, none of us would be here. What does Jesus do? Jesus was in heaven. Perfect. In love in the love of the Father, without sin, holy, pure, blameless. Did he stay there, tapping his feet, waiting for human beings to get it right? Did he stay there saying, where I am is good and where they are is evil? I'm good and they're bad. I'm all right, Jack. They're damned. He could have but he didn't. The gospel says that Jesus Christ gets his hands dirty. He gets involved. He became a human being like us, didn't stay at a distance, came so close that we could betray him with a kiss, made himself vulnerable, did not wait for us to get it together, but saved us by going to the cross for us. Everything in the gospel is you don't preach at people and tell them and point out their problems. You first come alongside them and share the way Jesus did exactly the same thing. And that that is the power of the gospel. Not that we have to be heroic, but that Jesus Christ already has been our hero. That's what Peter is doing by pointing to Jesus in Israel's story. You know, if you were here last week, Renato Benadis gave this beautiful sermon about how God restores lost sinners. And he gave the example of Peter, the one who's preaching the sermon. And how Peter, um, at the Last Supper, was told by Jesus that he would deny Jesus three times. And Peter says, says, No way, I'd die, I'd go to jail rather than do that. But when when Jesus is arrested, Peter follows him to the high priest's house. And he sneaks along, and three times somebody asks him, Are you with him? Do you know him? Are you one of his disciples? And three times he denies it, saving his own hide. Now Peter was, you know, a decent guy. He must have known what he was doing was wrong that he was betraying Jesus, that he was abandoning him. But the third time, Jesus turns and Peter catches his eye. And at that moment, Peter's heart is pierced. Because there's no longer an abstract denial of Jesus. Now Jesus is right there and he can see him. And just as Jesus prophesied, the cock crowed and Peter denied him for the third time. And Peter is cut to the core, weeps bitterly, must have felt completely worthless. And yet, as Renata pointed out last week, Jesus restores him, makes him leader of the church. Peter can present the gospel humbly because he had been completely humbled. He did not believe he was a good guy. He did not believe he had it all together. He did not believe that other people were worse than him. And therefore he had empathy with other people and was willing to go to where they are in order to understand how Jesus could be good news for them. What shall we do? Peter says, Repent and be baptized. Repent. Turn back, change our mind, return to God, be baptized, be baptized, join a new family, the family of God, a new community, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the power to change and restore our lives, to recognize that this is not just a personal promise, but a promise that we need to take to those who are far off. To those who haven't heard the message yet. From the Jewish perspective, this would have meant to the Gentiles. This message is bigger than just Judaism. But it can't start until people feel in their heart that Christ has relevance to them, that he has come, has stood alongside, and been part of what they value and what they know. You know, I became a Christian listening to the preaching of Tim Keller in Manhattan. And he always used to tell this beautiful little story about George Whitfield. So I'm going to end with that story. George Whitfield was um, an Anglican pastor in uh, in England. Um, But he came to America. And he helped start the Great Awakening. He was one of the founders of the Methodist Church. In fact, one of the founders of evangelicalism in America. And he was considered one of the best preachers that ever lived. But when he started in England, nobody showed up. He was very poor. He had to be a servant when he went to college to other students. And he was stuck in this um, little church, and nobody would show up to hear his preaching. And he prayed, and he tried to figure out what to do. And he realized he had to do what Jesus did. He had to go to where the people were, not wait for them to come to him. And like Jesus, he chose the lowliest people. And at that time in the 18th century, the lowliest and most reviled group of people were the miners. They were called the colliers. Though they were the foundation of the Industrial Revolution, they were treated like slaves. The life expectancy was less than 40 years. Many of them died of black lung from inhaling the coal dust, died of overwork or the dangers of collapsing mines. They were considered worthless. Nobody took any attention to them and they lived in these tight mining communities, pretty much cut off from the rest of society. They were considered the lowest social group. So George Whitfield decides in full clerical gear that he's going to go preach to them. And he goes to when the shift comes out and all the miners come up out of the ground and they are filthy dirty with coal dust. And he's in his clerical garb. Now, George Whitfield, I've seen paintings of him, was a short, cross-eyed man. He was not attractive. A little, short, cross-eyed man dressed up in all this garb and he goes and he stands in front of the mine as these exhausted miners come out and he's speaking without amplification to a crowd of hard tired filthy men and he begins to preach and it causes a sensation nobody has ever done this before nobody has ever come to the miners and spoken to them and treated them with any dignity at all and they stopped and they listened and these open air prayer meeting uh, open air sermons became famous and journalists would go and they would write about it a small man without amplification cross-eyed reading from his text but he loved Jesus And he was trying to emulate his Lord. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he had a gospel for them. News of a spacious new life. Better than their stunted, short, dangerous lives. And they stopped and they listened. And the reports from that time speak of as they began to listen, snowflakes would appear on their faces. Because the tears would create rivulets and blotches in the coal dust. They were smitten to the heart by this man that cared for them. And they were raptured by the gospel that he brought to them. And he started the the first great awakening in England. A great awakening that spread to America. That's how you make Christians. You need to know the story. You need to know the facts. But you've got to go to where people are, not speak at them. Take their beliefs seriously, their hopes and their fears. Stand in solidarity with them. And care enough to figure out prayerfully how Jesus is the answer to their hopes and fears. How he is good news into their darkened lives. How his message has relevance to them. And the power of the Holy Spirit will do the rest. And that's how the church has expanded. This first sermon, 3,000 people. For the last 20 millennium, the Christian church has continued to grow. All we have to do is be faithful. And not sit waiting, but go to where people are. Be willing to stand alongside them and share their lives. Be willing to do the hard thinking necessary. So that they can understand how jesus is their savior and the answer to their hopes and fears that's our call that's how christianity spreads let's pray lord we thank you for this record of peter's first sermon and the insight that it's all about going to where people are and standing alongside them and sharing with them Lord, give us the humility, the condescension, the courage to give up a little of our comfort so that we can go and share your gospel with those who are lost. Show us, Lord, how to spread your kingdom. We pray your spirit would work through us and in us and that everything we would say, every encounter, would glorify you and glorify your church. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.